Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Let me open uh, with a verse from the first chapter of the gospel according to Luke. And he, the he there is referring to John the Baptist. So, and he, John the Baptist, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Are you ready? Are you prepared for the Lord? So clearly, when these words were first spoken, you know, the referent is the first coming of Jesus Christ. It is the incarnation of Christ uh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and fully man, whose way is, you know, sort of cleared before him by the one we call John the Baptist, who comes in what Scripture refers to as the spirit of Elijah. And it's a, an utterly, I mean, it's utterly unique in all of human history. It's never going to happen again in this, in this particular way, but it is going to happen again. Jesus is coming back. And so the question that is raised at the end of this verse, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, is a legitimate question for us to ask of ourselves today. In what ways is God making us ready? In in what ways is God readying a people who are prepared for the Lord? What, What does it look like for us to be ready? I mean, ready or not, here he comes. So what does it look like for you and I to be ready? And how during this very strange season, could we be readying ourselves? So let me encourage you um, to sort of take an inventory of what you're learning about God during this time. How are you soaking yourself in the Word of God? How are you drawing up the spiritual resources that will be needed for the living of the days which are yet to come? Uh, Jesus makes really, really clear I mean, the opening chapter of Luke is an opening chapter, but as we move forward in the Gospel of Luke, we arrive at passages like this one in chapter 21, where Jesus is talking about his second coming, and he's talking about the things that will happen uh, that we should be watching out for, uh, and we should be watching out not to be deceived, because there will be many false prophets who come in his name. Um, that nation will rise against nation, that kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes and famines and pestilences of various kinds and places and fearful events and great signs from heaven, uh, that Christians will experience persecution on account of the name of Jesus, and and that will be betrayed. Um, he also talks about standing firm. Um, so there are many, many signs that Jesus says we should be looking up and looking out for. But in the midst of all of this, he talks about being careful, 
be careful. Be careful. Do not allow your hearts to be weighed down by carousing or drunkenness or the anxieties of life. That day will close on you suddenly like a trap. It's going to come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. So be always on watch, Jesus says, and pray that you might be able to escape all that is going to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So how are you preparing today for Christ who's coming? What if instead of considering this a time of um, not being able to do all of the things that we suspect we ought to be doing or want to do, what if instead we received this as a time during which God is making ready for himself a people to make ready a people prepared for the Lord? Let me just encourage you to consider that today. What would that look like? What would it look like for you and I to use this time as a time of preparation? All right, we're going to talk about, um, wow, a vast number of things today. We're going to lead off in a conversation with Pastor Daryl Crouch as, um, you know, as the government begins to reopen things or allow things to be reopened, one of the conversations and considerations for pastors and other uh, lay leaders of churches is when shall a local congregation reopen? How shall it reopen? What exactly shall be reopened? Um, Those conversations up next with Pastor Daryl Crouch. We'll be right back. Joining me again today, Daryl Crouch. He's the pastor of the Green Hill Church. He also blogs at crosstide.org. Daryl, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Carmen. It's great to be with you. It's wonderful to have you. So um, I'm looking at a list of uh, 24 questions that uh, pastors and lay leaders are asking across the country related to when to reopen and, and what to reopen when they reopen their churches. Talk with us about um, sort of the leadership conversation that's taking place now? Well, first of all, 24 questions. That's a lot of questions. So um, uh, that, <laughs> it, was I think, uh, it was crowdsourced. It was crowdsourced. I know it was. It was. It's a, it's a great article, too, by the way. Uh, Ken did a great job. But I think um, um, we're all having this conversation. We are all, uh, most of my day yesterday or a lot of my day with staff was around this conversation, uh, phone calls with other pastors saying, what are we doing? What are y'all doing? What's the governor going to do? And so on. So this is a big part of the conversation. And it is important to ask those questions. It is important to to uh, drill down. And, and I think one of the things that this um, this situation has created is all of us are asking questions about what is essential. You know, we're talking about essential workforce and so on. But in the church, what is essential? What have we been called to? What has God called us uniquely to as a local church? What's in what's our DNA as a local church? So one of the things I've shared with pastors and that they've shared with me, we've none of us are experts on this, by the way. Uh, we're all on a steep learning curve. But one of the things that we understand is that we're all very different and that every church will not do it the same as we think about reopening. I think that we should give each other a lot of freedom and that as uh, you're, our listeners today are part of a local church, perhaps, 
uh, they've got to understand, or we'd love for them to understand, that every church is really different, and and their pastors and leaders are dealing with unique sets of circumstances. And so to to show a lot of grace, to show a lot of uh, love and uh, kindness through all of this, and understand that as different church or as churches are different, Carmen, uh, all of us personally have a different disposition to this issue, right? So. Uh, I go to the store and some folks are wearing masks and gloves. Some folks are just wearing a mask. Some folks are just wearing gloves. Some folks are not wearing a mask or a glove. Uh, we've all got different dispositions and um, thresholds uh, that uh, for safety uh, measures and so on. And so uh, as pastors, we're trying to shepherd all of that as well, because we know that the folks that we're uh, reaching out to will come in with different dispositions or think about this situation differently as well. There's there's also, it seems to me, this um, the reality that every individual is processing this in a different way, in a different place, in the midst of a different set of circumstances. And so when we do arrive back in whatever form of, uh, of community um, is, is possible in particular times and locations, um, I can't really... I can't make any assumptions about what the experience of my brother or sister has been over these many, many weeks. Like, I just feel like there's just going to be a lot of unpacking, a lot of of grief sharing, a lot of um, conversation that hasn't taken place, even though we've been talking a lot maybe to our small groups um, and maybe we've even been meeting face to face via some kind of technology. It's it's going to be there's going to be this season of of like internal recovery for the body as it knits itself back together. Oh, I think that's one. I think that's so good. And I, I'm excited about that. I, I think um, that is an important part of who we are as the body of Christ. And so I think raising our level of sensitivity uh, to, uh, to this uh, issue has been a great opportunity for us to say, uh, let's let, what does it look like for us to put others first? And I think you're right when you think about uh, when you mentioned unpacking, what has your be- experience been? I, honestly, that's always the case. Uh, but our sensitivities to that go down as life is normal or looks normal for everyone. Well, now we know it's not. We know it's never normal for everyone. And so that's a little bit more big picture, a little bit abstract. But the fact is that we're all dealing with unique circumstances. So I'm excited as a pastor that this is a call to individual believers and my church members and those who uh, call Green Hill home um, to to step into each other's lives uh, in a little more personal way and to own that for one another and to look, see what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. And so I think as we think about uh, getting back together again, while that is so important to us and Gathering is central to our identity as a congregation. Um, it's not the only thing. And just gathering to be together and experience an event together is really not the end game. It really is to love one another and provoke one another to love and good deeds. And so uh, I think um, the, the, the raising or the deepening, if you will, of our sensitivities to one another, I think, is a fundamental takeaway from this crisis and any crisis for that matter. Daryl Crouch and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. What are the considerations your church is making right now? How are you participating in those conversations? What questions are you asking? Who are you hoping gets to go uh, back to church first? Those kinds of 
conversations are taking place across the country, uh, and they're taking place in each one of our own communities and in the congregations of which we are each a part. So that conversation is going to continue right here in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Pastor Daryl Crouch. You can uh, you can read what Daryl is writing at Cross Tide. It's a blog that he writes, crosstide.org. He's the pastor of the Green Hill Church. Um, Daryl, uh, here is a a a heart question. Mm. So, um, when do I get to hug my mom? Because, right? So she's eighty one, eighty two. Um, she actually turned 82 in the middle of all this, so I didn't get to like celebrate mm. her birthday with her like face to face. But when do I get to hug her? Because I'm now understanding that the coronavirus isn't going away. All we did was flatten the curve. We didn't actually like you know eliminate the threat. We simply spread out over time when um, a, a, a huge number of people will will get the virus. So my mom is still at risk. Um, and she's going to be at risk until this is resolved. But I'm not waiting three years to hug my mom. Like, when mm-hmm. when, when do I get to hug my mom? That's my big question today, Pastor. Wow, that's a big question. And um, I think, um, first of all, I think you will be able to hug your mom. I, I think um, uh, we'll see as the, the days go by, as we find ourselves, un- as we understand what the dangers are and what the risk factors are more and more, and, I, and I'm not a medical professional, so I may not be the best one to answer the question. But I think as we understand uh, what exposure to the virus looks like, I think uh, we'll, we'll be able to say, OK, with these precautions, we'll move forward with um, uh, less social distancing, particularly around people that we know and people that we've, uh, we're familiar with and that uh, know and trust us to have taken precautions in the in the days leading up to this moment, right? And so I think as we find out more about the virus, and th- there will be more opportunities for some social interaction, but it will be limited. And I think it will we will uh, go about all this in ways that are different than ever before. And I th- I think for us to be prepared for that's really important. And uh, but I do think you'll hug your mom again. And I do as a as a pastor, I look forward, you know, to being able to uh, hear back from you when you got to hug your mom and celebrate with her. But uh, uh, hugging will probably be limited even after that. I think uh, we've uh, we were able to visit with some of our parents over the last few days, uh, our adult, obviously our our aging parents. And um, but we kept a distance. We didn't hug. We were outside. Um, You know, we it was kind of a doorstep sort of visit and just to say hello from a distance. And so I think we we're getting used to some of that, but I don't think that's forever, uh, particularly within families and within folks who are um, uh, understand their exposure over the days prior and the weeks prior. Uh, But you're right in that this is not going away. And we are trying, all of us are trying to manage it as well as we can to walk by faith and not by sight. If we've ever been called to walk by faith, it's now. Uh, but also to obviously be good stewards and be wise with the information that we have. And I think we do come to a place where we say, you know, what are the facts? What are What's actually happening? And uh, then we prayerfully make decisions based on those facts and uh, as, as we know them and understand that we all live with some measure of risk. And um, 
uh, we we all have to come to a place where we're comfortable with th- that level of risk. And as believers, um, you know, we we have this confident hope that this is not all that there is, nor um, you know, nor our only opportunity to be in in very close fellowship um, with those who are in Christ. And I'm mindful of that in the midst of all of this. Um, in a way, Daryl, that I suppose sort of in the regular rhythms of life, I'm less um, moment by moment cognizant of that. I am, I am, I have a heightened concern for those who are not in Christ right now because uh, death seems to be, um, it, it's not really that more people are dying. It's that more, more people are paying attention to death. The, in ways that they were not paying attention to it before. Um, and so every death now is like literally counted. Now, every death has always been accounted for by God, but we as a culture have not paid nearly this close attention to every death um, as we are. I mean, we're counting them one by one right now, and we're being sure they're all accounted for. That is a different attention to the reality of death than we normally pay in our culture. Totally. And it does create this sense of longing and this sense of anticipation uh, for the for believers, uh, no no question about that. And we've known that, or we've noticed that over the last few weeks in the conversations that we've had. That hey, this is a picture. Uh, this this isolation that we're experiencing now is really a, only a heightened or a more vivid picture of what's existed before. As we long for a coming day that we'll all be together around the throne, we'll all be together in fellowship with Jesus in a very personal way that's physical and that's eternal and that's wonderful and glorious. But obviously for those that are outside of Christ, uh, the issues are different. And I I think one of the motivating factors as we think about returning to church or reopening church is not simply about us gathering here because we do have a hope laid up for us in heaven, but the question of what is the mission of the church and what is it that we should do in these days to connect with people who are near to us but far from God, and that whether they're across the street, and how do we do that with social distancing protocols and safety measures and so on, and how can we be creative about that? How can we use technology? How can we be intentional in ways that we weren't before? Because we just assume that the people we invited, for example, I I was in a retail establishment yesterday getting some things done, and and uh, I, I just naturally invited the person, you know, that was helping me to church. And, I, and then I thought, well, you can't come to church. I mean, like, I didn't even know, you know, it was such a, it was like, well, no, you can't come to church. So, um, but, uh, so the online options there and whatever. So it's just a weird kind of time for us, but I think it should heighten our urgency to share the gospel with those who are away from Christ. And these counting deaths, as you talk about, obviously provide a context for that that is unprecedented. And I'll use that word. I, I wanted to use that word before we got out of this. <laughs> unprecedented. Because it's because it, it so rarely has an opportunity to be used in these days. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, it's always a joy to talk with you. Um, let's uh, let's remind people of this before um, before we part today. Why does it matter if we ever go back to church? Why does it matter if we ever gather together again in in local con- congregations uh, to worship and fellowship and study and uh, and love up on each other? 
Well, there's a number of reasons. One, we were designed for community, that we were built for that. We, it's not good for us to be alone, and that's not just in the marriage context. We, we are built for relationship, and we find ourselves gravitating to that in one way or the other. And uh, when even outside of Christ, people will gravitate to community and finding ways to associate with one another. We are built for that, and God designed us that way. The triune Godhead is an example of, of the community for which we were created. So that's one reason. The other reason is that we really need each other. It's very difficult, and we would say this all the time before the virus came. I, I've said this for years. It's very difficult to follow Jesus by yourself. Uh, I, and when we find ourselves on an island, isolated, it's just very difficult to to remain faithful. We get in our head. We uh, the enemy has opportunities that he wouldn't have otherwise. With the accountability is really important, and that really is the context of Hebrews chapter ten, that passage that we always go back to about not forsaking the assembly. Well, the context around that is that we need each other to watch out for one another, to watch out for one another's souls, and to provoke one another to love and good works. We've already been uh, united and, and hidden with Christ by the blood of Christ. We've been brought into this fellowship, but um, to to deepen in our love for him and in our life of, of holiness uh, and to live that out, we need each other. And so I think all of those reasons um, <clears throat> are really important in terms of our gathering together. Um, but I also think we've got to be creative today and we've got to be patient and we've got to understand that gathering may not be 300 people in a room. That gathering may be much like the persecuted church does in very much small groups that are isolated and, and unique and, and um, very focused in their, their purpose for the day and so on. And so there will be some limitations going forward, but I think it's an opportunity, Carmen, for the church to um, to reevaluate and to reset and um, to to refocus on what God's called us to do, and I think we'll be able to do that. Uh, but the settings may may look a lot different. Pastor Daryl Crouch, thank you as always for joining us today. You guys can check out what Daryl is writing at crosstide.org. Always appreciate it, my brother. Thank you so much. Great being with you. We'll be right back. Primary elections are still going on across the country. There was one in Ohio yesterday. Um, I, I raise that because there are some things that continue to happen uh, in, frankly, surprising ways. Uh, we're going to talk with Hunter Baker from Union University next about the question of whether or not colleges and universities will reopen in the fall. If so, how, under what kinds of circumstances. Uh, lots of conversations related to this in terms of uh, the threat of lawsuits and the legal liability of uh, that schools are facing. And then, yes, we're going to survey some political headlines as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ever gotten lost on a road trip? It's confusing and frustrating when you take a couple of wrong turns. Everything looks strange and unfamiliar. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I find those feelings of insecurity and confusion are exactly what teens feel when they encounter a world they weren't expecting. The map they have and the things they were trained for don't match up with reality, especially as a culture is changing at an unprecedented rate. So next time you're frustrated because it feels like your child is going in circles, just remember that sometimes they're not 
being rebellious. They're lost. Put your arm around him and help him find his way home. Mark Gregson is devoted to helping parents of struggling teens. For more helpful parenting resources, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. Welcome back, sir. Boy, I needed that uh, rally music this morning. <laughs> We're here for you. We are here for you. <laughs> um, okay, so um, changes coming in higher education, some changes that have already been implemented maybe are here permanently or at least semi-permanently. Uh, two days ago, the president of Brown University wrote in the New York Times that college campuses must reopen in the fall um, or they're not going to survive. She described hundreds or perhaps thousands of colleges uh, that were in precarious financial situations before the shutdown. Um, it seemed to me that her concern in seeing colleges reopen was almost purely financial. Uh, it didn't seem to me that uh, a lot of other questions maybe were were being lifted up. Um, so I just love to have a conversation about how higher ed is likely um, to be permanently changed by all of this and whether or not every college and university should reopen. I mean, you and I have talked about um, uh, what what is that giant word you taught me once where the, the middleman gets taken out um, and oh, things are delivered dis- more directly? Dis- yeah, disintermediation. Yeah. So maybe this is an example of that. <clears throat> well, it potentially is. I mean, uh, a few years ago, there was this big uh, focus from Silicon Valley on um, what was then called MOOCs, uh, Massive Openly Online Courses. And the idea was was that you could have thousands of people signed up for a single course and and maybe you didn't need uh professor baker uh and the other thousands of professors who teach political science only you need america's one single best political science professor whoever that is um and if you have that one person then then all of the students can sign up for their class online and then there can just be a an army of grad students who can grade the tests and things like that. <clears throat> and um, and that that experiment failed. And originally people said, well, it failed because you weren't giving credit. Then they tried it at uh, I think once it was San Diego State, although I'm not 100 percent sure. And even even giving credit, it did not work out well. Um, there there's something about being in the room. I mean, the online education thing works super well for the motivated learner. Um, I think I would do well in online education because, you know, I would, I would want to, uh, learn the material. I would want to succeed, but if, but if there's any resistance on the part of a student and, and typically there is, uh, especially online, you know, they can easily do something else, be thinking about something else, speed the video up to two times, three times, um, you know, uh, be running Netflix in the background. I mean, there's all kinds of things that get in the way. So, um, 
So I understand the way it looks to you when somebody talks in financial terms, because then it just looks like self-preservation. Um, but the other side of it is, I honestly think that student learning is somewhat inhibited by a pure online format. Uh, I would 100% agree. Having gone to a an undergraduate institution where we had some massively large classes and then having gone to graduate school and experienced very, very small classroom settings, um, the the learning experience is completely different. It's completely different. Um, yeah. And so yeah. not even not even being in any classroom um, is the same as being in uh, in a classroom where you're known. Um, you can know and be known. You can ask questions. You can actually engage the material and the professor and uh, and your fellow students or colleagues. Um, so I do think that there we are learning a lot about learning. Maybe that's um, maybe that's one of the takeaways from this COVID-19 experience. We are learning a lot. Parents are learning a lot about uh, where their kids are. Parents are learning a lot about what teachers must do in in the schoolroom every day because um, we don't know how to do what they do. Um, we're learning how our own kids respond positively or negatively to online educational opportunities. So I do think there's a lot of learning going on. Um, I will say that I am aware of people who have kids who are college age. The conversations going on in their homes um, are overwhelmingly about whether or not to go back to campus. Even if the campus reopens, huge conversations going on um, right now about whether or not their kid goes back in the fall. And some of that is financial realities at home. You know, dad either lost his job or mom lost her job or they've both taken extraordinary pay cuts and there's no margin to pay for college right now. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely going on. Um, all of us in Christian college world uh, are worried about it. Um because, uh, you know, as, as expensive as college is, um, there's a couple of things. A, we tend to do a ton of scholarshiping, uh, as I'm sure the parents out there are aware, you know, yet, and even still they're paying high tuition, but they, it's less than the, than the list price often because of the institutional scholarshiping. Um, but B, it's just expensive to run an institution and uh, most of us are not running with massive reserves. You know, here and there, there's an institution that has uh, a significant endowment. Um, but for the most part, uh, we are not kind of fat, wealthy institutions. And so people are people are game planning, right? Are they <clears throat> are we going to be down 10 percent? Uh, in the fall, or could it be something terrible? You know, the, the people who are worried about it the most are planning for being down 40% um, in terms of the student body. So, uh, you know, there's there's tremendous uncertainty about what that looks like, about whether people would lose their jobs. Um, you know, how can we reassure parents? Uh, uh, you know, the thing that I'm thinking is, is that is that you should probably evaluate things differently based on what part of the world you live in. Um, the one thing I hope parents <laughs> with kids at Union will think is that we're in West Tennessee. We're in a <laughs> in a largely rural type environment. Uh, we are we are not exactly brimming with COVID uh, here. Right. You know? And 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 that's another thing, Carmen. I mean, 
we our hospital is the biggest hospital in West Tennessee outside of Memphis, right? We are rural healthcare uh, here in in Jackson, and so our hospital geared up for COVID, right? I mean, they told people to stay away if you didn't have COVID, and they they geared up for it and totally were prepared for the wave to crush. And instead, the hospital lost $18 million last month mm-hmm. because we have not had, you know, the wave of cases. Uh, and I understand that's what we had to do. But that's another thing is that when we say that it's purely financial, I get that. But but over time, that purely financial figure is pretty large. Absolutely. And and in every sector of uh, of the economy and healthcare is certainly a big part of that. All right, Hunter, let's you and I take a very brief break. When we come back, um, let's uh, let's talk about the fact that this is an election year and there there are some election headlines. So uh, Hunter Baker and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. Um, okay, so Justin Amash might enter the race as, I don't know, a third-party candidate. That seems interesting. Um, there is a rising rising tide of, uh, of conversation um, related to sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden, the presumptive nominee for uh, the Democratic uh, Party, or the Democrat Party. And um, and people are talking about whether or not we could vote by mail. I don't know. Do you want to talk about any of that? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to talk about there. Um, Justin Amash, um, former Republican congressman um, from Michigan. I actually uh, have a good friend who was involved in his campaign when he originally ran for Congress. Um like Ron Paul, a a Republican who is uh, kind of really a libertarian underneath. Um, it's an interesting kind of a question. I, uh, On the one hand, 2016 was probably the greatest time for libertarians ever to run for president uh, because you had Hillary on the one side and Donald Trump on the other, and people were looking for an alternative, uh, especially a lot of Republicans. And <clears throat> instead, the libertarians ran two former governors uh, who who ran uh, against religious liberty, uh, which <laughs> which is a problem for libertarians. Uh, and so it was not very attractive to a lot of people. Justin Amash, I think, actually could have done pretty well in that environment. Uh, now, libertarianism, I think, is at a low ebb. I mean, with the virus. <clears throat> We are at the center of big government headquarters. I mean, we just passed a $2 trillion stimulus, uh, and government has more control of things than ever now. So maybe there's a protest vote out there about the, against that. But my suspicion is, is that with the virus looming large, uh, libertarianism is not going to have a huge appeal. All right, so let's move on from that one to um, to another uh, conversation topic. So this is the Washington Post today um, headline: the sexual allegations against Joe Biden. Um, they are uh, they are highlighting cor- uh, several uh, you know corroborating. I don't know the, if the language is witnesses, but at least people who are corroborating 
um, this individual's story. And yet, uh, and yet, you know, yesterday Hillary Clinton comes out and endorses uh, Joe Biden as the the presumptive nominee. Um, you know, other people who seem to be running uh, to to serve as his vice president, who are also women, you know, are coming forward and, and saying, I believe Joe. What what happened to I believe the women? Well, I mean, uh, you know, for me as a as a sort of a scholar of political thought, I have always been aware that um, political accusations has been a topic in the field forever. Uh and so um, when the when the Kavanaugh thing happened, um, you know, I could not help but think to myself, there's too much political gain from the accusation to simply take it at face value. That doesn't mean that I don't believe women or anything else, uh, but it's different to uh, believe a woman's accusation kind of in a in a non politically charged environment than it is when kind of all the all the cookies and the cash is on the table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that that means there are major incentives. And I just want to point out, you talked about, uh, you know, corroborating witnesses regarding Biden with Kavanaugh. There really were none. There really was no corroboration uh, of any kind. You know, she uh, when when uh, Dr. Ford made the accusation, she immediately named two or three other people, all of whom said, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> and yet uh, that was a massive story that took the entire country by storm for at least a month, uh, if I recall. And, uh, and yes, the Biden thing is very low key. And what you're seeing, and I hope, I hope that what voters see and understand is that People support the narrative that goes well with their party and their party's chances. That is generally the way it works. That's what you're seeing now. Uh, And you're right. I mean, so the message goes from believe women to believe Joe. Uh, And that's what happens. That's politics. All right. You're just you're just all sunshine today. Um, Let's talk (laughs) about. We have a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about. Um, the upside and the downside of proposals to vote by mail. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of worried about it. Um, you know, uh, uh, some countries require people to vote. Um, I think in Australia, you actually have to vote uh, under some some small fine or something like that if you don't. Um, my view is, is that I want people who vote to be motivated. Um, I, I think it's good for people to have to kind of affirmatively, um, take the action of going to the polls and voting, um, because it means they're really interested. They're really following things. Um, you know, voting by mail, there's really nothing wrong with it, uh, other than I, I worry a little bit that it's just a little bit less commitment to the process, um, and I worry about fraud. Uh, you know, in, in California, they kind of have this thing happening where they do what's called ballot harvesting, um, and you are allowed to go to people's house and uh, and to effectively harvest their ballot, and they just agree to let you to vote for them by proxy. Uh 
it just happens that that resulted in the greatest Democrat wipeout <laughs> in California of all time. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's. Uh, I don't know if that's an indication of fraud or anything like that. But I just. It just seems like there's just a little bit more opportunity for something to, to be manipulated or something to go wrong uh, with something more remote like voting by mail. All right, sir. That's all we have time for today. Um, but I. I genuinely appreciate um, just the. The viewpoint, the lessons, the perspective, uh, the conversation. So thank you, as always, for continuing to join us. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. That's Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. We'll be right back. (laughs) All right. So I have a a little uh, corroborating testimony here for um, our friend Hunter Baker. Apparently, there was literally a poll yesterday uh, across the country. Uh, It's a USA Today Suffolk University poll, and it is finding that uh, Hunter is right. Libertarianism is uh, definitely on pause or hold. Uh, In double digits, Americans think the federal government is doing too little, not too much right now. Big government is apparently back. Um, So that might be a conversation point going forward. All right, we've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Up next, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.